0: Today on the Scott Radley show on 900 CHML. Uh,
1: if you've ever had kids, especially probably especially boys, uh, maybe I'm generalizing but I will do that anyway. If you've had young boys, teenage boys especially, chances are they have at one time or another either owned or gone to a friend's house to play video games that you may or may not have had some qualms about because they were a little violent. I mean, Grand Theft Auto may be the granddaddy of those games, but there are others for sure. And I think a lot of parents, in fact, I know that there's a lot of parents who have had their concerns over the years. Do we let our kids, our sons play these violent video games? Is there a chance that this is going to have a negative effect on them? Or is it just a video game? You know, we played Pac-Man and nobody wanted to run around eating ghosts all the time. So what's the harm? We played Space Invaders. Nobody's actually thinking of shooting down aliens. How bad can it be? Well, a new study was published this week in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. It's a study that comes from Dartmouth College, one of the big leading universities in the states. And it answers, we think, it answers, at least to some good degree, that question. The lead author of that study is Dr. Jay Hall. He is a professor of psychological and brain sciences and he's the associate dean of faculty for social sciences at Dartmouth. He joins us now. Uh, Dr. Thanks for doing this today. Really appreciate it. No, oh, really enjoyed it. We are I know you are in an airport so we're going to hope that the uh, the sound is okay through the phone. It comes in and out, but
2: Actually, I just parked my car. So oh, just okay. All right. So, I think that might be better for sound. Not in my parking.
1: If you don't move right there, you're good um okay. this is this is a study that i think you've hit on something that an awful lot of parents have wondered about for an awfully long time i don't know if you have kids i don't know if this is something that you had ever even beyond oh, in yeah, a scientific way it. if you've ever wondered about
2: oh yeah um i play games i started i'm 66 years old I, like, all the way from like pac-man and galaxians through i uh, theft auto I've, I've played a lot of different games my kids I have two daughters. Um, they didn't play at all. Uh, they did watch me play, um, but they didn't play at all.
1: And, and, you know, again, I said in the intro there that I may be generalizing and I may be a sexist for saying this, but it seems to me that this study and this topic leans heavily on the teenage boys rather than on the teenage girls. Would I be correct, do you think?
0: It, yeah, well,
2: it sort of does. I mean, we did an earlier study. We had a um, very large sample, 3,000 subjects that we followed for, um, I think, up to like seven years uh, over time. And we were able to look at both who played the games and whether they showed increases in aggression over time from their original baselines of aggression. What we found was that boys are much more likely to play the game. So that's certainly true. But among the played the games, they showed the same effects the boys did
1: Okay, and I'm pulling a quote here that I've pulled out of USA Today, That you and I don't know if this is a quote to USA Today or from the journal that you wrote, but the quote is, um, well, let me just find it now that I've lost it, based on our findings, we feel it is clear that violent video game play is associated with subsequent increases in physical aggression. Um, that seems pretty direct, that there seems to be, from yeah. your study anyway, there is a connection.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, so the point of our study to try to settle some of these debates, so there is a debate and, the, and there are a couple of people the most of the people are, are on one side of the debate, and there are very few on the other, sort of like climate change <laughs> but uh, um, the the person who is on the video games don 't really matter and that there are a lot of problems with the nature of the research on these has a couple of good points, and so we tried to address the points that that he he and his colleagues raised in particular. Uh, we try to address three out of the four points that he, he uh he made in criticism of the existing research. One of the points that he made was a lot of this research doesn't really look at consequential aggression. They don't look at physical aggression. They include a variety of things like um did the person uh commit verbal aggression so they're you know they're yelling at somebody or did they basically um experience anger and Do they have hostile thoughts and things like that? And he made a good point that to the extent that those are included in the kind of a meta-analysis that we did, um, it may bias the effects to look larger than they actually are. So we only looked at studies that looked at physical aggression. And and we found effects despite the fact that the sample of studies was restricted to physical aggression. The second criticism they raised, which has some validity to it, is, a lot of studies don't include other kinds of variables and try to statistically control for them, like gender or like parental style or educational background of the parent, socioeconomic status. There are a variety of things that you could use to try to statistically um, control. It isn't a true uh, experimental control, but statistically control for background variables. And what he said is a lot of studies don't include those. And to the extent that they don't include them, the effect looks much much bigger and may not exist if you do control for them. Okay. So we, in this paper, we included both analyses with no controls, with gender controlled in addition to initial levels of aggression with gender controls, and then with basically the kitchen sink. And what you can see is he's got a little bit of a point. I mean, if you include some of those other control covariates, the size of the effect goes down. but The effect exists even when you have all of those things thrown in there. So that, you know, and and that's what the point of our study is. There's an effect. It's on physical aggression, uh, absent all of the other kinds of
0: ways that you might look at aggression. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML
1: talking with Dr. Jay Hall, who is a professor at Dartmouth College. We're talking about a study that just came out this week about physical aggression and violent video games. And this study says there is a connection. It's a question that people have been asking and worried about and debating forever. And just before the break, doctor, we were talking about the, the controls that were put on this study to try and make sure that it was as accurate yep. as possible. Yep. Once that's all done... Yeah. What are the numbers? What are the percentages? Uh, surely not everybody who plays a violent video game is going to go no. out then and be violent. So, how, how no. what effect does it really have? How widespread? No,
2: yeah. So there are a variety of ways to look at that, and I'm not going to bore your or or confuse your audience with statistical analyses. I have you know, I teach statistics. I teach graduate statistics. But uh, let me put it this way. So we had a study. It, our study is actually the largest study that's in the meta-analysis, and I can go within there to try to more accurately and, and descriptively answer your question. So one of, the, one of the things we looked at was we just, we just took people who play a lot, people don't, who don't play very much at all, just high versus low. Then we took those. These are all kids. They're about 12 years old. And one of the variables that we have is, have you been sent to the principal's office for fighting? And at the first time point, the kid said, I, that hasn't happened in the past month. So none of the kids had been to the principal's office for fighting in the past month. Then we separated them into high violent game players and low or non players. And then we looked at them eight months later. So it's an eight month time window. And we asked them, have you been sent to the principal's office for fighting? And basically we saw that the kids who were high game players were twice as likely to be sent to the principal's office for fighting than those who were low game players. And then you go, okay, well, that's, it's kind of a rare event to be sent to the principal's office, you would think. So within that eight-month window, for the low-game players, about 5% of them were sent to the principal's office for fighting. Within the high-game players, it was basically twice as much. It was close to 10%. So that's the kind of effect. It's not, you know, 100% of the kids aren't going, even among the kids who are playing these games a lot, they aren't getting sent to the principal's office regularly. But I would you know say that uh, that's a fairly sizable increase now, if in fact it is an increase, and that's a different point of of um, of question debate, did these games actually are the game playing responsible for that increment that you get? But just get get back to your first question: Is the effect reliable? Yes. Is it relatively small? Yes. Is it consequential? I think so.
1: Do we know... Sorry, do we know if the same thing happens if you play video games that might have, like a a Madden football or something, that might get your blood pressure going but doesn't actually have bullets flying or cars running over people?
2: Great point. So if you look in the meta-analysis, you can see... um, Actually, you can see the kinds of aggression that they list, but we didn't actually report the nature of the games that they were playing. They were all characterized as violent but they characterize them as violent in a variety of ways okay some of them they just said what are you playing and the kids would say the games they're playing and then the independent researchers would code those for the amount of violence involved some of them they would say here are six different categories of game sports being one of them so there might be fighting sports um entertainment social interaction a variety of different kinds of games Basically, those researchers would choose the kids who said, I'm playing the games in the fighting category. So there is some variability in the nature of the games that they're playing. In our study, what we did was we said, are are your parents letting you play mature-rated games? And then among the uh, kids who say they do play video games, some of them said, yeah, I play mature-rated games, and others said, I don't play mature-rated games. But they all said they played video games. We also said, do you play these three specific games? Grand Theft Auto, you mentioned that in the intro. Yeah, Manhunt, which is just a horrible game. Uh, You kill people with all kinds of creative techniques after torturing them. Or Spider-Man. And what we found was Grand Theft Auto and Manhunt were associated with greater increases in violence than Spider-Man. Spider-Man was associated with increases in violence as well. Not nearly as much. So it looks like, yeah, the more egregious the game in terms of the amount of violent content to it, the bigger the effect. There haven't been a lot of good studies that have looked at that kind of dose response uh, curve. But, but in our data, I would say that, yes, if you're playing Grand Theft Auto, they are showing the principal effects that we're talking about.
1: Is there any way to tell, uh, is there a possibility that the games aren't making some people violent? Rather, the people who are prone to violence are picking these games because they fit Absolutely. with their tastes?
2: absolutely so what we for first of all you have to realize this is a longitudinal study so what we took is at one point in time we said we measured how aggressive they were and then eight months later we measured how aggressive they were again and they had to show an increase in the amount of aggressiveness to, for us to make mm. draw our conclusion so you know the kids are how aggressive they are at one point yes yeah so and so you're trying to account for an, a, an increase over a relatively short period of time so that's one issue The other, and and it's a great point to, uh, you know, is this correlational or or causal? The only way to get at causal mechanisms, that it actually is the game that's causing the increase, is to go into a lab study and randomly assign them to play the games or not, and then measure aggression. And lab studies have done that. They see that the kids randomly assigned, so it couldn't be their own background variables because they just got into the gameplay condition because that was what they were assigned to randomly assigned show increases in aggressive tendency. So there are a variety of different ways to measure that. One is the hot sauce paradigm where you basically choose how much hot sauce you want to put on the other person's food, and you can measure how much hot sauce they actually choose. And the kids who are playing the violent games, they punish the other person with more hot sauce. So, it's, you know, the criticism of that is, well, that's kind of innocuous laboratory behavior. So it's the combination of the two, the fact that in the lab, You see that these games do increase aggressive tendencies and in the field you see they are associated with increases in actual aggression physical aggression that makes the joint argument the only way to really test it causally would be to have some kids on a desert island be randomly assigned to play games for a year and and compared to the others uh who play more innocuous games and actually see if there's an effect there has been one researcher in germany who did a really interesting study. In we only have did. 10
1: seconds left. Sorry but to jump seconds. in. Yep. He
2: took kids and told them they couldn't play those games anymore, and six months later, they showed less violence.
1: There you go. Uh, you can hear more of this. It's fascinating stuff. You can hear more of this. You're going to be on CBS's morning show tomorrow, correct? That's right. You We've can tune in tomorrow to the CBS morning show, Dr. Jay Hull. Remember, you heard him here first.
0: Eastern time.
1: Thanks for doing this today. Really appreciate it. Fly safely.
0: Thank you, Scott. <laughs> You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
1: Back in June, we had my next guest in studio. She was, I don't know what the, my percentages are not great, but she was well on her way to doing something that I don't think anyone else in the city of Hamilton has ever done. If they have, they kept it a closely guarded secret. And that was to walk every single street, of that, every single marked street, every single street you could find on a map. In the city of Hamilton and back in June she was she was well on her way but there was a big chunk still to do Uh, thank goodness that was the summertime because she's back in Anita Joldersma is back in and she's got her map which is now full full
3: Hamilton is full
1: you finished the entire city of Hamilton on the weekend
3: not the big big city not the Flamborough part not the you know um, the extended part but uh if your address is hamilton ontario i walked on your street
1: so mountain and lower city yes and remind everybody cuz some people may remember you others may not why did you do this
3: uh huh <laughs> A strange question, Um, but I I decided to in September two thousand fourteen on Labor Day is like a a good start. Let's go for a walk, and I went. Everyone has
1: a Labor Day resolution. Yeah,
3: and I thought (laughs) go around the block, and I went around the block, and it was miserable. Um, I had the wrong shoes on. I had blisters. I was sweaty, and I was almost crying, and I just didn't want to do it anymore. But the next uh, two days later, I decided to go out and do it again. And it, was, it took about three weeks before I thought, I'm a walker. And I just felt like, let's keep doing this and let's see where it goes.
1: See, anyone who's ever started the gym, you'll see I'm wearing my gym clothes today. I go out to the gym after I do my show every night. The first two or three weeks, two weeks, are horrendous. They're the worst things ever. But once you all get over the hurdle, it's still horrendous but it's less so. There's almost almost something you get out of it.
3: Yeah, uh, it helps that um, I have a little bit of OCD. I have quirky fun OCD. Not, which means? Not, not, not psychiatrist-worthy OCD. <laughs> okay. Quirky fun, which means... You don't wh- have to
1: walk around every block four times then. That would take no, a much longer time to do this. <laughs> no,
3: but when I saw on the map this blank street, and I had just been on the one before, it's like i got to fill that one in. And at one point I was saying, D- did I walk on this street? Yes, I have. No, I haven't. So I started keeping track.
1: So how long was it but uh, how long had you been doing this before you finally got a map and said let's start monitoring this
3: Probably probably about a month.
1: Wow. So there's some streets you've done twice.
3: Oh, many streets I've done twice. You you do each each cul-de-sac, you go up and you go down and and I've done many streets over and over again just to get to where I haven't been.
1: You've even done each cul-de-sac? Yes. Now for 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 rules purposes to make this fully authentic, yes. when you go into a cul-de-sac that is a loop Yes. Can you do you go in, in a straight line, touch the far sidewalk, and come back, or do you do Pretty the full much. circle?
3: Sometimes. It depends if there's cars or something in the way. Sometimes I do um, walk on the street instead of the sidewalk, but a lot of cul-de-sacs don't have sidewalks. No.
1: See, I don't know that there's any official rules for this because No, no, it's no new. I made them up.
3: <laughs> uh, what I did not walk on, I did not walk on the QEW. Good plan. They, they do not um, say that that's a good idea. No, good plan. I do not walk on the Link.
1: Another good plan.
3: I did not um, walk on the Queen Street Hill.
1: Yep. That's, yeah, that's a really good plan. Yeah,
3: but I did manage to get up the Sherman Cut. Uh, I waited till they closed it down for construction. And then on Sunday, I whipped up there and they whipped back. And I got, so I got the Sherman Cut done. I got a little bit of. Um,
1: you did another one, though, that you had to give a donation to at one point, yeah, right? Yeah, I
3: did get up the Red Hill from Barton to home. And. Um, because I thought I, the marathon was on for the Road to oh. Hope, and I thought it was, a, you know, I, I would not be a marathoner um, by any means, but I thought if I can walk up while they're walking or running down, uh, maybe that wouldn't be too in the way. So I I asked permission, and I said, by the way, I'll make a donation. They said, sure. So I was really happy to be watching all the runners come towards me, and I I walked on the red Because
1: some of these places, you do have to pick your spots. Yes. I mean, you really do. It is it is dangerous. We hear stories every day of people on bikes or people on being hit by you. This is not about taking your life in your hands, hopefully. Yeah,
3: no. I'm, I'm quite a, a, a wuss when it comes to that. I'm quite safe. Um, but it's funny that the only close call I had was walking through um, at a light through a crosswalk when I was supposed to be and, and not, you know, somewhere I wasn't supposed to be. And someone... Came Someone close. was turning left, ah. and it was it was so close that the person waiting at the light I I heard them swear because they <laughs> thought I was going to be hit.
1: Now, did you ever the ones you didn't get? Did you ever get up Queen Street Hill?
3: No, I, there's unless they close it down. I so don't, that's the
1: one unmarked thing. The, yeah, the, the, the little asterisk.
3: Yeah, it's uh, like I don't know that. You're allowed to. It's it's like the there's signs on the link saying you can't. It's no. signs on the QEW saying you can't. But it doesn't say you can't. But I don't think it would be wise to be walking down no. that thing.
1: So when uh, so you start about a month into this, you start keeping track of the roads. Yep. And there's a lot of streets, a lot of roads in this city. How long was it bef- when you started to think, I'm going to do the entire city? Because you know, when you start and you're even doing it for a month, it's going to be a very, very small amount on that map. It's yes. going to be awesome to look at that thing and say, I've got to do everything. Yeah. When did you say, oh, let's just do the whole thing?
3: Well, I started with the Hamilton mountain. And um, I, I live on the mountain, and so I would go to the edge of the mountain. And then I started going down the steps occasionally and to get to get somewhere. Um, and then I thought, well, let's walk down here a little bit. And I was starting to discover the city in ways that I just had never seen. And downtown was so interesting. And it was so fascinating to see that. Did
1: you normally get down there, like for uh, normal occasionally, life?
3: Occasionally, no, not too many appointments or anything down there. But uh, uh, what I would do now for my walk, I would find a place to park and then try and, you know... Um, go to a store down there or, you know, see things that I've, I'd never seen before. So
1: any places that you went, I mean, it, look, everybody has a neighborhood they feel very comfortable in and other places that because it's not familiar, they don't feel comfortable. Any places that you were fearful?
3: Um, that's an interesting point. Um, I had walked down near um, the, the general hospital um, just after there had been like some violence the night before. And I thought, oh, maybe this isn't that wise. But when I walked there, it was 8 o'clock in the morning. Um, people were taking their kids to school. There was crossing guards. It was just regular people. And I thought, okay, you know, my, my impression is not what, what it is. And I thought maybe not wise to be there at 3 in the morning. But di- during the day, lots of wonderful people are out. All
1: the walking done in the daytime?
3: Almost all, yes. Usually early morning.
0: You're listening to The Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
1: You are in your car driving to the end of your street to pick up your mail. My guest in studio wags her finger and says, shame on you. She's not actually doing that, but um, she has walked every single street in the city of Hamilton. She's just pulled out her map here that she has marked it on, which Anita, Anita Joldersma, by the way, I think you're, that is something you're going to have to get framed now.
3: Yeah, somehow
1: somehow get pla. It's going to be a big plaque. It's going to cost. I have to do a GoFundMe or something to get the plaqueing done. But, mm-hmm. um, but it is it is a, a, an inspiring, amazing thing to see all the streets that you have been on. There are you know, what are the just for people because they obviously can't see it. Where are the boundaries roughly that you walked from?
3: Well, I went to City Hall and I asked them what the boundaries were for the voting, and so they mm. told me. And it's there's this little uh, graveyard up near Burlington that's actually Hamilton. And it was, I think, Gray's Road in. Um, wow, way out in the east. Okay, yep. Yeah, that's where some of the boundary is. And then you go, and then I did uh, to um, Ancaster, and then I went to the edge of Dundas, and yeah, so went to Glanbrook.
1: And yeah, way up to Glanbrook, and then right down to the industrial parts into the yep. north end, right into almost into the water. Not quite into yes. the water, but. Um, yes. Now, Saturday, you so see, you're fit. Did you know? You had always. Um, um, refresh my memory because when you were here in June. You had a plan for how you wanted to finish this, correct?
3: Yeah, I, I didn't know for sure, but I, th- I was starting to run out of streets that were special. So I thought, oh, I'm going to set aside Carrick Street. Why Carrick? Carrick, um, our last son, moved out and made us empty, nest- empty nesters, and he moved to Carrick Street. So it was a little bit of symbolic of beginnings and endings. And, and, and where is Carrick Street? Carrick is down by the uh, stadium. Okay, and so I also have a friend who has been writing a story about Evelyn Dick, and she lived on Carrick Street. Evelyn Dick did, so it's, mm-hmm. it's got a lot of you know history. It's a it's a charming little street. So,
1: and had you left other streets around Carrick, or was Carrick a little? I want the thing? little
3: tiny just one by itself little, little street. That's all I had left for Saturday.
1: So you literally had about a hundred steps left to do for Saturday. Yep. yep. Now, when you are finishing this, I saw some pictures, I saw some video, Uh, Fred Eisenberger, the mayor, how does he find out about this? It
3: it was funny because I had friends said, you should call the mayor, you should call the spectator, they'd love to cover this. And it's like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to call up the mayor and say, hey, you know, want to walk with me? So it didn't sound like a good plan if I did it that way. So as I was walking, um, I was going around the block to start the thing. I noticed that it was a tie cut game and across the street from where I was standing, was um, the mayor doing his campaigning stuff, shaking the hands. And so I thought, okay, now i got to go over and just say so what I'm doing. So it was I'm a doing. complete
1: fluke that he was there.
3: I, I had no idea. And I wouldn't have picked a tiecat game to finish uh, because there was no parking down there. <laughs> so I had a hard time, actually. Um, so I went across the street and I just mentioned I was doing it. And he said, hey, can I come? And it's like, sure. So he and a couple of the staffers came along and they walked with me. And my daughter had a, a finish line ribbon and... <laughs> My cousin had some flowers. And
1: so where is, when you look at the map, and I don't know how good or bad your memory is. I don't know if you can look at every single street and have an immediate recollection. That would be really impressive if you could. But no. there must be a place or two places that you would say, you know what, if I had a free day, I'm going to drive my car. That's where I want to walk again. Where, where's the place in Hamilton that you want to walk? Where should people want to walk because it's the nicest or best place?
3: Oh, there is There is no one place. Um, places like James Street are great. Um Anywhere, what I found it w- interesting is that if you go into um, the the suburbs y- and you you see people, you nod at them and you smile. If you're on the main street, you don't do that because you, we're all just you know we don't know if we belong. But if you're in their suburb, they think you belong, and so all hmm. of a sudden you're. You're a, f- a friend almost, and it's it's really an, a need to uh, sort of experience. To do you ever get that. lost? Yes, that's why I have my map, my walk app with me. <laughs> There's many times I thought, oh, I'm in the wrong area.
1: Really? So you've been somewhere, and then you had to look at your phone or Absolutely. whatever and say where exactly? I, am I? So
3: I have been one of those people staring at my phone uh, when I'm walking, and I haven't hit the, you know, a signpost or anything, but I have had to uh, because I need to know which street I have to go to next. So.
1: Uh, It's a very personal question and it's not intended as anything other than if you do this much exercise, do you lose weight? I mean, you don't need to, but do you drop weight when no, you're walking this I, much? I,
3: I could lose some weight, but uh, walking I found was great. But if you come home and eat a bag of Cheetos, <laughs> it, it won't help. Welcome you, to my world. You, you cannot yeah. outwalk your fork or that's what I found. That's a
1: great line, yes. So, um, but hmm. it,
3: but it, it's made me feel a lot better. I feel stronger. I feel uh, like I have a little more stamina and it that that's a, a really good benefit. Walking is a great benefit.
1: Well, because it seems that a lot of people don't want to go to the gym. I mean, I hate doing it, although, I know it's supposed to be good for me but if you can't this seems like a pretty darn good way to as I say to lose a few pounds and get in a little bit of shape and see the city and
3: yeah I started loving it well and
1: you're wearing a shirt right now that sort of in two lines tells the story Uh, you are it says future author of the short story Confessions of a Streetwalker I know that's going to be a bestseller on Amazon without people having a clue what it is
3: yeah well I don't know (laughs) they might what I am part of a writing group Uh, we meet at Terry, Terry Berry Library every two weeks and it's called the Hamilton Mountain Writers Guild and uh we make short stories and we published the first book and we're just finishing up the second book and so a third book's going to be worked on this spring and I thought, I got to have a short story. I might as well write about that. So that's what I'm hoping to work on over the winter and it'll get published I'm sure time.
1: it's going to be a wonderful story. I'm just wondering how many creepy guys on Amazon that order it are going to send it back going, this is not what I was expecting. <laughs> yeah,
3: no, there's, there's other, I'm just going to be one of a, f- a number of stories. So hopefully they'll find something <laughs> else in there to charm them.
1: <laughs> now we only have a few seconds left, but what do you do after this? You're, you're done the city. Do you now take on the suburbs or do you do something else?
3: No, I decided I will. I will Pardon? I will cut a
1: That probably fits in with your confessions of a streetwalker story by the sounds of it. <laughs> yeah.
3: Um, I, I found the definition of this what word. What is cut a is to travel purposefully toward an as yet unknown destination.
1: So that's intentionally getting lost.
3: S- sort of. <laughs> so intentionally getting out there, finding purpose and, and discovering that your walk will will take you to a place that you haven't been before if you try a new place. And it's, it's a wonderful way to, to visit your city and to get to know it and love it and feel like you belong.
1: Will there be a new map? Are mm. you going to keep track of it that way again? Eh, we'll see. It is a great story. It is, um, it's amazing what you've done, and, and congratulations on finishing it. I, five months ago, I was thinking it was going to be a lot longer than this before you were back, but uh, well done. Anita Joldersma. Um, has now walked every single street in the city of Hamilton. I dare anyone else to try that. <laughs> Thanks for coming in.
0: Thanks. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
1: The hockey season begins tomorrow. NHL season begins tomorrow night. Toronto will be hosting Montreal, as is the way every NHL season should begin. We really don't need to see the Las Vegas Anaheim season opener, I don't think. We would like a little tradition. But in... As this is happening, a new book is has been released, is being released, which is hitting on, which touches on a really interesting, one of the really interesting stories that ties into hockey, but it's a business story as well. It's a media story. It's a story of how the CBC lost the rights to hockey. How Hockey Night in Canada, it's still on the CBC, but only in a, not in a real way. I mean, it's the, you'll, you'll get the point. Uh, David Schultz is a Globe and Mail reporter. He is also the author of Hockey Fight in Canada, the big media face-off over the NHL. David joins us now. How are you tonight, sir? Thanks for doing this. I'm good, Scott. How are you? Doing very well, thank you. And you know, when I heard you were writing this book, and I've heard that this was coming for a while now, my initial thought was, I don't know who is going to be interested in that. And then I started thinking, well, wait a second. Moneyball, which is a business story from sports, was a huge hit book, was a great movie. Uh, The Late Show which were was it the late show? Yeah, the, the late shift, which was all about the Letterman Leno fight for Johnny Carson's seat was a behind the scenes it was a fascinating read and I thought of course this is a perfect book for Canadians about hockey and about the business of that thing.
4: Well, it's funny you mentioned the late shift because you're not the only person who who brought that book up when they were talking about mine. And, in fact, someone gave me the Late Shift book yesterday because they thought it was so relevant, relevant, and I started reading it last night. I, I had read excerpts in the, in the, I think it might have been Vanity Fair when it came out, but I had never gotten around to reading the whole book. But, yeah, um, those kind of books, I think, uh, are of interest to people. I was always fairly sure this book would appeal to a lot of people, simply because when I was writing about the same subject for the Globe and Mail, those stories were always among the most well-read uh, hmm. on our website. And I, I don't mean just in sports, I mean for the whole paper. So,
1: Well, Hockey Night in Canada, and we'll get to the whole story in a moment here, or at least as much as we can do in the few minutes we have you, but Hockey Night in Canada essentially was was, is there another show that was on the CBC still, that was as much tied into the fabric of this country? And I know that's sort of cliché and schmaltzy to say, but, I mean, is there anything else on there that was as much Canadiana?
4: No, not not in those kind of numbers. I mean, there were shows, yeah, that uh, appealed to more certain groups of people, but this one was right across all the demographics and all ages. And uh, I I remember when I was talking to John Collins, who was the head of marketing for the NHL and negotiated this deal along with Gary Bettman, uh, he said to me, he said, this is the most unique property uh, in sports. And he meant everywhere, because he said the only comparison in the U.S. might be Monday night football Mm. when it comes to bringing people together. But he said... Monday night football in the states is more like guys night out it's a bunch of guys going to the bar to watch football and he said hockey night in canada is is the whole family that's that's everybody gathered around the television set uh, for most of Saturday night, and he said, that's really something powerful to sell to advertisers.
1: Well, and not and Monday Night Football. When did Monday Night Football start? 71, 72, something around there? Right around
4: there? there. I think it was 70.
1: Okay. And, and Hockey Night in Canada, even before TV, it was on radio. I mean, this was, has been a yeah, yeah. generational I mean, thing.
4: Yeah, that started as a habit in the 30s. And, you know, I can't think of any other show that could come close to claiming something like that.
1: So when you start getting into this book, and again, the book is called Hockey Fight in Canada. I'll mention it a bunch of times so that people can remember to go out and buy it and read it because it it looks fantastic. I'm going to be certainly buying it. Um,
4: Amazon.ca and chaptersindigo.ca if they don't want to go to their local bookstore. I'll
1: I'll do that tonight. (laughs) Yeah, no, I'll do that tonight. I'll get it onto the Kobo tonight. But I would have to believe, David, and you tell me where I'm wrong on this one, but when you've had a property, when CBC has had a property like this for as long as they had... It almost would seem to be a birthright for them. And am I, would I be anywhere close to right in guessing that when, even when the negotiations were coming up, they probably figured it wouldn't actually leave?
4: Yeah. And, and unfortunately for a lot of people who worked at the CBC, that's exactly what those guys on the CBC's negotiating team thought, was that somehow they would get to keep it just because they'd been you know, a partner with the NHL for so long. And that's sort of where the, the whole fumbling of this thing started. And, and they still insisted on, you know, clinging to the, the sort of traditional setup, um, even though the NHL made it clear this wasn't going to work anymore. And the NHL, what do you mean sorry,
1: what do you mean by that by the traditional well, they, setup? They
4: basically, their attitude was if there's a, if there's a Canadian team playing on a Saturday night, or during today, for that matter, it's going to be on the CBC. And and the NHL's point was no, that's you know that was the old days. This is new. We're selling. We want far more games on the air Saturday nights and a few other nights, and they're going to go to other people. Uh, but we're willing to accommodate you in a scaled down version of Hockey Night in Canada for certainly more money, but still something you can afford and you can make money on. And the CBC wouldn't go for it. And then, you know, uh, later on, Bell reached out to them several times, offering a partnership where the CBC would keep certainly one and most likely two games a night. And this is the kind of puzzling thing about it, is because the way they set up their broadcast, they were only showing two games a night in every market because of the black, like, you know, uh, they wouldn't show any more than two games in one market in a night. And yet, you know, they weren't going to go for essentially the same thing. They still wanted to to control all of the seven teams' games from coast to coast, and that wasn't going to wash anymore. And so they ended up with nothing, And uh, basically, and then compounded that mistake by figuratively bending over when Keith Pelley came and said, this is what the deal's going to be. We get all the advertising money, you show them on your channel. And it was just, you know, they just made a complete hash of it.
1: Well, and there's another part of this that I was reading uh, uh, from the book, and that is that not only did CBC, I think, maybe uh, screw that part up or at least mishandle that, but again, by the sounds of it, there may have been some cockiness that hockey would never leave because when it came time to really... Bring in the big guns to try and nail this thing down, or at least sort this thing out. CBC left their biggest gun at home.
4: Yeah, they uh, and and Bell made the same mistake as well. Um, yeah, there were there was a, a breakfast meeting at the start of what was known as the exclusive negotiating period in the summer of 2013. CBC had that right as the existing rights holder. So Hubert Lacroix, the, the, then the president of the CBC, along with his negotiators, Jeffrey Oridge and Neil McEnany, had breakfast with Gary Bettman, John Collins, and uh, probably Bill Daly as well. And by the end of it, Hubert said essentially, well, guys, uh, you're in good hands and, uh, you know, have have a good negotiation and i'll see you again basically when we have the press conference to announce the deal <laughs> a- and collins and bentman were stunned you know because bentman has a very strong sense of his importance and the league's importance and and he fully expects when he's negotiating a major contract the most important person in that company had better be sitting across the table from him and and that didn't happen Lacroix didn't take an active part in negotiations and neither did George Cope, the CEO of of Bell Canada. And that really, you know, didn't help matters, even though, you know, by themselves it wasn't enough to kill the deal, but it really, you know, put a damper on things.
1: When you first heard about this, because you were covering sports media at the time and T V and hockey as well as everything else for the globe, when you first heard this. Did you hear about it first of all when it was announced or had you heard rumblings right before or at some point before that this was going to happen?
4: Um, how secret as far was as it Rogers getting the the deal no uh, there weren't any rumblings until you know literally the last second so the fact that they landed it came as a huge surprise. Uh, I was not surprised that CBC lost the deal because, um, just because of the money involved and and the funny thing was there was some spinning going on certainly on the cbc side so that there were a couple of uh... which i read about advanced story or stories in fact one uh... was in our paper the morning the deal was announced that that the cbc was going to hang on to hockey night and uh... you know that um, uh... TSN and, and Bell would, would have a you know lion's share of it. And I think, in large part, that was because some of the CBC executives were doing some real furious spinning the night before the deal was announced um, because, yeah, technically, Hockey Night did stay on the CBC, but they kind of left out the part about we'll no longer get any money, which means <laughs> we just lost half of our entire advertising revenue for the whole network, and that means... Many many people are about to lose their jobs, and many many programs are going to get canceled because of this.
1: Well, at least until the Liberal government came in and gave an extra four hundred well, billion dollars. Yeah, that helped. Four hundred million, I guess.
4: but you know what? <laughs> in the in the short term, in the immediate term, the damage was done. These mm. people were laid off, and these programs were canceled. And uh, and it, it you know most uh, well, I, I can't say that all of that wouldn't have happened. I mean, certainly in view of the Harper government's funding cutbacks, a lot of that was inevitable. But they really made it worse by, you know, by by fumbling the deal.
1: You talk about the CBC, you talk about Bell. Do you think that the CBC and TSN, on the other hand, because TSN had had a lot of hockey prior to this and Leafs and everything else, do you think they were shocked as well when this was finally announced?
4: Oh, yes, they were. I mean, they were completely taken by surprise because the Rogers guys, uh, Scott Moore, who resigned from today. Rogers today, he was the last the last one of the 3 that landed that deal the other being keith pelly and, and Nadir nader he was the last of the 3 to be at the company and he stepped down today told me he wants to take a break and then try something new he was talking about maybe going to a startup media company or a media company that needs a turnaround because he seems you know he says that's sort of what I do <laughs> so that was kind of a that itself was a bit surprising um i'm taking him at his word that he wasn't pushed out um I don't believe uh, Keith Pelly was pushed out either, but I, I am quite sure that Nadir Muhammad, uh, yeah, he, that was a little different in that the Rogers family uh, kind of soured on him for various reasons. But now I've lost track of what we well, we're Well, no, I'm talking, talking
1: about, about <laughs> this. Su- well, it's okay, we're talking about the surprise of this, but then. Yeah,
4: th- yeah, it, it was because Moore and Pelly had a, a deliberately played down the idea that they would be bidding for the. You know, the big prize, because, and, and because they figured stealth would be their, their best approach. And so they, they were also able to sort of fool the Bell guys because Rogers was sort of in the middle of uh, changing CEOs. Muhammad, I believe, had already announced his retirement for the end of the year. And Guy Lawrence was coming in, so they kind of let it out. You know, we don't know if the new regime would approve this kind of money and that sort of thing. So the TSN guys were were really thinking up to the last minute that they were in the driver's seat.
1: When this started, and we only have a few more minutes left, and there's like five hours we could do on this. I know you're not being paid by the hour. But um, when this started then, Sportsnet Rogers gets the package, and the first two years are, fair to say, even by your description, or whatever, an unmitigated disaster?
4: Yeah, I, I'd, I'd say that. I mean, Scott Lots Moore, go wrong. Rogers guys think I'm a little unfair when I say that. But, you know, they were promising advertisers a 20% bump in ratings and what actually happened was a 16 percent drop in both of the first two years so you know when you're you're basing your prices on on your ratings projections yeah that's a disaster was that
1: their fault though david or was that the fault of a lot of canadian teams being really bad at the same moment that this happened, and, and we should probably do this as a separate question, but, and they seem to buy the rights for this with the $5.2 billion right around the time that the whole cord-cutting thing really began to take off. The timing seemed to be really bad for them.
4: Well, you know what? No, you can't lay this solely at the feet of Rogers, because even though, you know, cord-cutting was going on, viewership in general for all forms of television was declining, still is declining... But the, but the thing was live sports programming was was sort of resistant to this. There were declines, but not they weren't as severe as in other you know like in the entertainment sector. And the reason was if you know if you wanted to see what's going on in a, in a sports event, um, you wouldn't tape it and watch it later or or live stream or, or stream it you know off Netflix from, How many months ago no you you want to see your team in the moment so that's why even though viewers were declining uh the fees for sports rights were were going up steadily because that was the one form of programming where advertisers knew that their product had a chance of being seen by people and so and the other thing was you know rogers really had nothing to do with all the canadian teams getting bad at once Um, If you remember, the Leafs were coming off that sort of surprise uh, playoff appearance in 2013 when they almost knocked off the Boston Bruins in the first round. And, and, you know, that was the whole Phil Kessel team there. And, you know, that summer everybody thought Rodgers was well set up because the Leafs had, had made a good showing in the playoffs. They were still a young team. People thought they were on the rise and then of course uh in in the first year and the second year, they both they, they you know in, as Brian Burke always put it, we had this eighteen wheeler going off the cliff at the last minute, and you know it it was then a perfect storm. All the other Canadian teams were lousy at once, so it it was hard to uh fault Rogers for that. You might want to fault them a bit for being a little too enthusiastic in their demands with uh, advertisers, and, and the other thing was was making way too many changes mm. to the show itself all at once, uh, yeah. you know, including George Strombolopoulos.
1: And all that. Uh, just before I let you go, then, with that, so there's the there's the two years that things were really sour. Seem to pick up. Is this though? Presumably, if if the Maple Leafs are anywhere close to what people are saying and hoping and thinking they will be, is this the year that really puts the exclamation mark and says this is why they did that deal? Is this the year that says this was a good deal because? what could happen this year
4: yeah I think it should be I mean the Tavares thing again caught everybody by surprise because you had this rookie GM and Kyle Dubas and his first big job he hit a home run you know not a home run he hit a grand slam and he got Tavares I mean personally I never thought for a second Tavares was coming here so you know the team was already getting better so people were excited and then now you got this huge icing on the cake and and you know, people are just can't wait to see what this looks like. And I'll tell you what—I, you know, from the pregame or preseason games, I saw Tavares and Mitch Miner, Mitch Marner, are just going to be a dynamite pair to watch.
1: And a lot season. of people will.
4: Yeah, and and you've got the Winnipeg Jets now mm-hmm. are a big, young, fast team. In fact, I think they may get to the Stanley Cup final ahead of the Leafs and the Edmonton Oilers a lot of people expect them to you know bounce back from that bad year they had and the Calgary Flames are pretty respectable so yeah i think the regular season ratings should be the best so far in that contract and if they can sustain that in the playoffs yeah that this will be it should be it's or it's. I let's put it this way: it's setting up to be their best year yet. And uh,
1: yeah, it seems like an odd time for Scott Moore to leave right before they start backing up the Brinks well, truck every two days just to <laughs> load all the ratings money into the the back of it. But
4: well, he says he's got Sportsnet in a good place now. Uh, they're sort of number one more months than not over TSN in the ratings. And that was actually when they started out doing this. That was one of their top goals: was to Make Sportsnet the most watched sports network in Canada, and for about the last two years, and and this is in addition, thanks to the Blue Jays, sort of unexpected at the time success, they've been able to do that, and uh you know, so he says I'm leaving Sportsnet in a pretty good place, and it's a little hard to argue that. So uh, hey, why not? And and you know what? Those the job he's got, I mean, you're working twenty four seven and surely it must get to you after a while <laughs> I think.
1: Uh, the book is Hockey Fight in Candidates by David Schultz, the big media face off over the NHL. As you say, get it on uh, Amazon, get it get Kobo, get it wherever you get it wherever you're gonna find a book. I'm sure it'll be at Indigo or chapters or whatever. And we will eagerly wait I guess David for the follow-up book when Rogers decides to make the big push to get the CB, the uh, CFL ratings for the CFL brights from TSN.
4: <laughs> Someone else could <can> write. That <laughs>
1: <one>. <laughs> David Schultz, uh, you can find that book again. Hockey fighting Canada. David, really appreciate the time today. Good luck with the book.
0: Oh, you're welcome, Scott. The Scott Radley Show weekday evenings from six to eight on 900 CHML.